Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Critical Theory. It's a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Michael Rushton about the moral foundations of public funding for the arts. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Yes, thank you, Dave. Uh, this is both a kind of fascinating book. It, it, it's really interesting with, with, with lots of, um, I think, really important and, and useful uh, kind of scholarly interventions. But also, I, I think it's a really important book uh, because it speaks to something that um, the public in lots of different countries, but also governments of lots of different nations are grappling with, which is what do we do about supporting arts and culture in contemporary society? And the book, I guess, kind of presents um, somewhat of a kind of economist's uh, perspective on that question. And, and I'm really interested to know um, kind of what inspired you or, or why did you decide to write a book about public funding and public support for the arts from that starting point? Yes, I think, well, I think sort of one of the central questions in arts policy, it might even be the fundamental question of arts policy is, why have one at all? Um, after all, we can have cultural lives without an arts council. They're a 20th century invention. It's not as if uh, the arts would completely collapse without them. And so if we are to have public funding for the arts, as, as, as we do throughout the world, then, then a question of, well, why, why would we do this? And just from a policy perspective, how would, we, how would we justify this? I think the arts provide a particularly interesting case study for this because of the just documented fact that of the things that are subsidized by our arts councils, whether national or local, uh, it is only ever a very small percentage of the population that really takes advantage of these things. And so, you know, when it comes to public policy, there is no there is no book out there on the moral foundations of transportation policy, because we'd say, well, we need roads, we need trains, we need all of these things to make our economy run and everybody uses them and there's not much question there. And so everything delves down to, OK, what would be the, the best kind of infrastructure to have? But arts policy is a little bit different because it isn't uh, quite so necessary in that in that sense. Um, and, and so coming up with some kind of argument for why would we do this when we know that it is a, a minority taste. Um, I open the book with the example of public funding for the Cleveland Symphony, which is a very distinguished orchestra in the United States. It's a very wealthy orchestra. They do very well in private uh, donations and endowments and so on. Um, they receive uh, a fair amount of public funding from federal, state, and local government. But it is, it is performing music that truly is for a minority of the population and a, and a fairly well-off minority at that. And they're doing it in a relatively poor city um, where the, the, the poor as well as the, the middle income are paying the taxes to subsidize it. And so I open the book simply with that anecdote to say, we need to be able to say something, something about 
how do we justify doing this? I think it's an important question uh, that requires a little bit of depth in terms of how we can look for an answer. The book sort of gestured towards towards this from your perspective as an economist. The, the book brings this uh, idea of a kind of economic method um, to this uh, question. Um, and for those who are sort of familiar with um, economics more, more generally, uh, there are engagements with kind of key ideas, the idea of a public good, market failure, uh, the way that um, the arts produce um, or, you know, are subject to particular kinds of externalities. And, and it'd be good to hear, I, I guess, the kind of the frame that the book uh, adopts, this sense of a kind of economic method before, I suppose, we delve more deeply into the, the moral foundations. So what, what's going on with the kind of economist's take on the arts? Well, I think there's a couple of things. Um, one is I, I am an economist by by training and and, and by nature. Uh, so I thought, well, I'll begin with that, although I try to expand the book into various other approaches beyond the economic um, later on. But I do begin with it. One reason I begin with it is because it has become, uh, and I guess it's the, the mot juste, the currency of discussions about it. So even people who are not economists and who maybe don't even like the economic method will often cite ideas of, well, the arts are a public good. The arts have spillover effects such that even if there are people who don't directly attend, they benefit from festivals and concerts and, and museums and galleries and so on. Um, and so that, that economic, a vague kind of economic reasoning is simply out there in the public discussion uh, even if not by economists themselves. And so what I try to do in that first real analytic chapter beyond the, the introduction is to say, okay, can we really dig into this and find out, well, how does this approach actually work? So if you were sort of a real, you know, mainstream economics economist trying to analyze this, how do you go about it? What, why do we think public goods or spillover effects or market failures what kind of intervention does it justify? And importantly for this book, what are the underlying assumptions in the, the economic method that often go unstated, but are actually um, fairly important? Uh, for one, uh, the economic method tends to put questions of distribution and equity to one side. And, and so we, we simply look at, well, um, you know, what are the aggregate benefits? What are the aggregate costs of doing a particular action? And we will leave concerns about uh, e equality and distribution uh, for another day or, or for another policy. And so that's one important thing to realize about the economic method is standard cost-benefit analysis focuses on aggregate benefits and costs, not so much on their distribution. The other thing I really try to draw out is that the economic method is based on an assumption, a guiding assumption, that people, all people, know better than anyone else their own tastes and preferences, and that that should be the guide to how we calculate benefits and costs. It's very Benthamite uh, in that sense. Um, and this is really important because it means that if we want to say, well, the arts are a public good, an economist would say, well, yes, but the valuation of that public good depends on how people actually value it. 
You can't simply say, well, in theory, it could be a public good, therefore we should have this policy, because it really does then come down to, well, how do people value this or that public good? Um, there was an interesting case in my hometown of Bloomington, Indiana, over the past month, where the, the city council uh, rather foolishly decided that it was going to devote a million dollars to a big monolith that would stand near the entrance to the city that would simply say Bloomington on it. And when the public got wind of this, uh, there was all kinds of protests saying, well, this is very unattractive. It's very ugly. It's a waste of money. They, they were right. <laughs> Actually, I was with them on this. Um, it, it, was, it was very tasteless, uh, this monolith idea. But it did highlight the fact that something is only a public good if people actually value it as a good. And so in using the economic method, we have to keep that in mind. It is very much, uh, we don't question people's tastes. Um, any spillover effects depend on people perceiving them as such. It cannot simply be a theoretical possibility leading to a policy conclusion. Uh, I'm sort of a bit stunned by uh, the world having lost the Bloomington monolith. <laughs> <laughs> that that really does sound quite quite like something. Um, well, well, one of the and yeah, I'm sort of quite not quite sure where to go with that. What one of those things uh, that you've been teasing out? Uh, I guess that kind of classic issue of of distribution. It's worth saying that often economics presents itself um, as the scientific uh, kind of study of these distributional questions. But but the book really, I, I think, really strongly tries to, to argue that economics has a set of, of really sort of philosophical underpinnings, and it directly links the economic method to a series of, I suppose, kind of interventions or almost from um, a range of different political philosophers. And, and I mean, we'll, we'll deal with them in, in turn, and I'm sort of cautious of uh, not just throwing the same question at you over and over again. But, but to an extent, the, the book's kind of middle chapters grapple with liberalism's view um, on funding the arts, egalitarian perspectives, communitarian perspectives, and then um, quite interestingly, what happens when you get conservative arts philosophies. So if we deal with them in turn, um, there's a fascinating kind of almost quite blunt question that comes in the third chapter of can liberals support um, arts funding? Can a liberal state support art? What, what are the kind of key ideas you're drawing on here? And, and, and what is liberalism's take on public funding for the arts? OK, uh, yeah, in, in the in the third chapter on, on liberalism, I I use the uh, sort of profoundly influential work of the uh, American political and moral philosopher John Rawls and his theory of justice. And I, I simply thought that this was a, an important uh, argument that any arts advocate will have to, will have to confront. You'll be familiar in, in both the UK and in the United States and in my home country of Canada, you often have sort of very small government libertarians who might look at arts funding and say, well, how is it the government's business at all to say we should be out there enjoying the arts, we should go to the museum, we should, we should go to the opera? Um, it's, it's none of their business. It, it's not an essential task of the state, uh, and it is certainly not up to the government to say, you know, we're going to fund some arts because it's good for you. And you've heard those kind of arguments before, often, you know, often on fringe, but you get that libertarian argument. Rawls is a bit different. Uh, because Rawls 
is very much a uh, believer in sort of individual liberties out of out of Immanuel Kant and uh, you know our, our freedom of, of speech and expression um, and uh, as extensive as liberties as possible such that we can all have them. So a very you know a very core sort of liberal idea, kind of a you know almost John Stuart Mill kind of liberal idea. But he's also very much an egalitarian, uh, extremely so in terms of uh, all offices and opportunities must be equally available to all. He was a, a strong opponent of any kind of ingrained inequality in our society. I've always found it an interesting story that when he was a professor at Harvard um, in the 1960s, he, he signed a petition opposing the deferment of the draft into the military for university students, uh, which you can imagine would not be a popular position for him to take at Harvard. But he said, well, if people are going to be drafted into the military, it must apply equally. And it should not be the case that simply because you have the, you know, ways and means to get into Harvard, you should be exempt from that. So very much an egalitarian. He thought that the only permissible differences in uh, well-being that could be allowed would be if they were to the benefit of the very worst-off person. So here you have somebody who is believes in liberties, but very much an egalitarian. And he is, in his book, expressly against government funding for the arts. Because he says, uh, more or less on, on two grounds, one is that in a liberal state, the government has no role in trying to tell anybody here are the things that constitute a good life. Here are intrinsic goods that everybody should value, whether they realize them or not. And, and uh, he, he is opposed to that idea. He says it's completely up to individuals themselves to determine what means a life well lived is. And that might mean a life out in nature rather than in, in enjoying the artistic life. Um, and he also sees no grounds for arts funding on egalitarian grounds. He says it's very hard to make the case that, uh, you know, public funding for our major arts institutions is in fact to the benefit of the very worst off among us. I think any of us would find that a difficult argument to make. And so he, he, he actually has a chapter where he says, you know, we, we can't justify this kind of funding. And so I thought, well, it's important to address this. If, if we are going to have a book on the moral foundations of public funding for the arts, there has to be some kind of response to roles. We have to be able to say, okay, well, um, is, is he right? Um, could we disagree with this? There are people like Ronald Dworkin who've tried to square the circle by saying, well, yes, I agree with all of Rawls's ideas, but maybe we could find a way to justify funding. Uh, Dworkin essentially comes up with a fairly conservative argument um, that, well, on egalitarian terms, we have an obligation to future generations. So if you think about intergenerational equity, we in this generation have an obligation to preserve a vibrant and living culture for future generations. Um, that's one possible way around it. And the other possible way around Rawls is to say, well, maybe he's wrong. Maybe there are, in fact, intrinsic goods that um, the government is quite right to support. Um, that we should not be dogmatic on this idea that uh, the state can never try to suggest, you know, here are things that we think you may not realize it, but are in fact a part of a good and fulfilling life. You mentioned an egalitarian uh, reason to fund the arts, and um, 
I guess the discussion of philosophers like Martha Nussbaum contrasts with Rawls and Dworkin. And, and, and again, this kind of phrasing that comes through uh, the uh, chapter on egalitarianism really, I, I think, distills the, the, the key question, would an egalitarian support funding for the arts? What, what is that kind of, I suppose, sort of egalitarian critique? And, and the chapter is actually very good, I, I think, on setting out the broad sort of egalitarian uh, problem um, with particularly Rawlsian liberalism, but also, uh, I suppose, there is this, this kind of core question about what does egalitarianism mean for the arts? Yeah, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting question, and this is one I've wrestled with for for a long time. So, uh, you know, put put simply, suppose you you are you are a, a person who who cares deeply about um, equality in the world. You have a real egalitarian commitment. Now, there are different ways in which people would say we should pursue equality, and you know, one of the key differences is well, is it important that we pursue sort of equal opportunity and equal chances for people, knowing that in the end, some people are simply going to be left better off than others. Um, that, that is sometimes summarized as an equality of resources sort of argument. Um, can we try to approach equality of well-being? And, and how would we do that, given how different we all are, uh, both in terms of what things we think are a part of our well-being and also differences in how happy we are given the things we have. What do we do with the very unhappy rich person and the uh, very content poorer person? How do we think about egalitarianism that way? And then I also devote uh, a fair amount of space to the Martha Nussbaum and Amartya Sen uh, idea of uh, capabilities and uh, the capabilities approach to equality, which I think is at least for the past 20 years, has become something of a, a next big thing in terms of thinking about, well, the real way to think about equality is what kind of lives can we live? What sort of things are available to us to do and to be? But that's the real measure of equality, not some hedonic measure of happiness, not some simplistic measure of resources, but simply what, how can we lead our lives? Um, and so I look at all of those different kinds of approaches. And I find it, it, it is generally difficult to draw from that a really strong commitment to public funding for the arts. And uh, there's a few problems here. One is you might say, well, if I do really have an egalitarian commitment, is the arts where I would pursue it? So I live in a country in the, you know, the United States with you know, profound inequalities on many dimensions. Um, for all of the ways that I might try to combat that in terms of equalizing housing opportunities and desegregating schools and strengthening labor unions and, and all of the different kinds of things I might pursue, would an arts policy actually be a part of that? And maybe it is, but maybe it isn't. Maybe uh, it might be the case that, well, arts policy is one of those things that might be fully justified, but it's actually not the best instrument in terms of dealing with what are the major inequalities that we face. So, um, you know, in, in any country we, we can think of, the UK or the United States or Australia or Canada, um, it, it is, is that the best use of arts policy to try to 
deal with inequalities that we have in the world? Uh, or is it best focused on something else and leave to other policies the, the job of trying to repair the various inequalities that we that we have? Uh, somebody could look at the United States and say, you know, the inequalities and in, say access to quality health care are actually a much more severe and pressing problem than inequality of access to the arts. I mean, what you've described there is, is a classic kind of individualist uh, framing, really, is, isn't it, as, as befits uh, both liberalism and also the kind of broader economic method. And the egalitarian critiques, I suppose, still kind of work within that. The, the rest of the book has, has got some very different uh, methodological kind of starting points, uh, I, I think, for the, the various sort of philosophical positions. So let's sort of turn, I, I think, to two philosophies that really seem to be very, very kind of different, but both have, have got a broader kind of more collectivist um, set of assumptions underpinning them and, and have, you know, in, in some ways quite collectivist, if quite distinctive and very, very different for a lot of different reasons, um, views about the arts. And these are communitarianism and what what is effectively a kind of your own creation of a sort of conservative position given um, the kind of disparate uh, nature of sort of conservative philosophy more generally. Um, I wonder if you could kind of talk me through both of those critiques, I suppose, of individualist positions, communitarianism and conservative. And what would both of those philosophies think about arts funding? Okay, I'll, I'll take them in turn. On the communitarian critique, um, and there are sort of what you could think of as left communitarians, say a Charles Taylor or somebody with you know a strong commitment to uh, you know equal equal um, equal um, opportunities for people and a distribution of income and so on, and then sort of a more conservative communitarian approach. So, but communitarianism in general begins with essentially a disagreement with both the economic method and with the sort of Rawlsian liberal method in that both of them are very individualistic and they begin with the idea of, well, it is up to individuals themselves to determine what it is they value, what it is that is important to them. The economist tends to focus on what are we willing to pay for things such as the Bloomington monolith, um, and, and Rawls in terms of a broader sense of what do we think constitutes um, what makes a good life and, and, and a life well-lived and how would we sort those values. And both of those methods, the economists and the liberals, will both say, well, that, that is actually up to individuals to, to determine. The communitarian critique says, well, this is, this is backwards because how can, you, how can you talk about how we value certain goods like our, our common language, our, our, our common culture, when those are things that have actually determined our values in the first place. And so how we think about matters such as what is the importance of beauty in nature and, and art in our lives or the pursuit of knowledge, um, you know, how are those things important to us? Those aren't things that we you know, simply have preferences about. Um, we have been raised, you know, from birth uh, in, a, in a particular culture, whether, whether we think of our, our family, our, our peers, our community, uh, our nation, in terms of how to, 
how to think about these things. Our, our, our values um, come first. And so to then ask us, well, how much do we value, how much do we place a value on classical music? Or to use Taylor's example, how much do we value the present uh, preservation of French as the primary language in Quebec? He says these are these are questions that are nonsensical um, because the the individuals we're asking to form the place those values have been shaped by those very things we're then asking them to value. And you, you simply can't ask the question. An economist can ask in, say, a contingent valuation study, can go around and ask residents, how much would you be willing to pay? How much would you value uh, devoting some money to a flood control project in this particular location? That's the kind of thing we can maybe come up with a sensible answer to because we don't like our homes or businesses or roads to be flooded. But to ask us how much we value the arts, how much we value the, the preservation of our intellectual and cultural heritage, those are questions we can't answer. And so the economist is off on the wrong foot just from the beginning. And, uh, and, and Rawls thinking that we are simply you know, e existing out there, free-floating, determining these ideas of the good life um, is, is simply not a, a realistic picture of, of how we are formed and who we are. And if we accept that critique, we then have to say, all right, well, now we have a, a sort of a different question about public support for the arts, because now we recognize that it is a shaper of our values and its importance to us depends on sort of our, our pre-existing culture and what we have, we have grown up with. The value we place on, on a, a concert, on a festival, and it might be it might be very local, it might be something very particular to a town, or it might be something broader than that. Um, we simply can't ask in terms, in those individualistic terms. And so it changes the question of uh, how we are to make public policy. I think it makes it more difficult, more challenging, um, but it does force that, that recognition. And what about the kind of contrasting, I suppose, general conservative position, both, both in terms of, I mean, the, the reason I put them together is um, reading the two chapters, I saw quite a lot of um, crossovers actually b between them, both in terms of the communitarian defense of living, as you've described, through values, um, but also, I guess, the kind of conservative defense of things like tradition, wisdom, patterns of um, having done things before and those things we've done before having value. Yeah, I think there is a lot of, of a lot of overlap. While we tend to, you know, if we go to so the origins of sort of modern day conservatism in the 19th century, um, the real opponent uh, for them was not leftism so much as it was utilitarianism. Um, and uh, this misguided sense that that was the, the key to all questions of um, of, of welfare and, 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 and the state. Um, and, you know, even well into the 20th century, you know, most conservatives, it was, you know, Jeremy Bentham is the bete noir of, of them all. So in that sense, they really do have a, a relationship to the, to the communitarians. I guess, uh, conservatives would go more, um, just take it in, in a particular direction. And I had trouble with this chapter. I'm going to confess. I had trouble with this chapter because because conservatism is, and I don't mean this in a, in a derogatory sense, so it can be taken that way, it is in fact a reaction. And the reason conservatives are called reactionaries is because they are reacting to what trends they see and they are trying to 
preserve uh, what they see as sort of the, the wisdom and value in our inherited culture, even if we don't see it ourselves. And, and I think this is where uh, conservatism can, can really take off in a way that is not quite so emphasized by communitarianism, is that there is something in a wisdom of what has lasted, what we have chosen to preserve. Um, if we think all the way back to David Hume's essay of the standards of taste, you know, one of his, his primary judgments uh, is, do we think this is something that will last? Do we think this is something future generations will value? Um, that that is the true mark of, of somebody with, with taste. And so I think, you know, conservatives come from there seeing a value in preserving sort of what is, what is ours and, and, and a value in it because it is ours. I try to make an effort to bring in sort of left-wing conservatives. Um, there's a, a wonderful essay that I recommend to everybody by uh, uh, Jerry Cohen on rescuing conservatism. So here you have a, a Marxist uh, confessing his conservative tendencies uh, in simply in the fact that we, we value things that are ours simply because they are ours, because they are part of our traditions, uh, part of our heritage, and that it is worth preserving these things that are good, even when they are good just for that reason, that they have lasted, that they are part of our past. All of these positions, I, I guess, um, to a lesser or greater extent, assume a, a fairly kind of unified or, or like monolithic um, kind of view uh, on society. Um, you know, the conservative position, as, as you've been discussing it, the sense of, you know, um, we have these things that have lasted and we should preserve them, you know, so we should support uh, financially. But most societies aren't actually like that at all. Most societies are in, in, in some way or other kind of multicultural. And the penultimate chapter uh, of the book, I, I guess, tries to kind of complicate um the whether it's kind of unified or monocultural um, context in which many of the kind of uh, key philosophical positions you've outlined um, are conceiving of society. So what is this sort of challenge uh, of multiculturalism? Um, and how does that, I guess, kind of uh, complicate um, justifications or indeed critiques of arts funding? Yeah, it's it's. It's sort of a, a complication we, we have to deal with head on. I know the the term multiculturalism has sort of died out in official arts policy in most places. I think Canada is the one place it lasts because Canada actually has it as part of, part of its constitution that it is a multicultural country. And so the Canada Council for the Arts always makes a point of reminding us of that. Um, so I took multiculturalism, I call the chapter multiculturalism, but I take it not as a official policy, but more as just a, a fact that, that we have, that we can have multiple cultures. Uh, it might be a disputed fact. It might be that we, we uh, overstate the degree to which we have multiple cultures in that sense, where you have a, a part of the population that has very specific uh, cultural traditions and cultural practices and cultural valuations that are different from another sort of monolithic group. I think there, somebody could argue, well, there's much more mixture across groups than that simplified picture could say. But I think it is worth saying, well, well, what do we do with that? Um, and there are different approaches to it. Um, 
One is to say, well, suppose we think that having a culture you can call your own um, and something that gives you that, that sort of sense of, of values, of identity, of a way of forming ideas and visions is a necessary part of being sort of fully human and, and, and fully a part of the world. And if it is the case that there are different cultures in that sense, it is important from an egalitarian perspective to preserve those cultures. And this is the argument that you would get from, say, I think the most prominent researcher on this is Will Kimlicka. And uh, he takes, you know, it's very much a, a liberal approach, but he says if we are committed to a liberal kind of equality, then the preservation of cultural identity is actually important for how people can live. Um, I use as my primary example through the chapter um, the indigenous people of Canada. And this is where, again, my, my own background as a Canadian and as, as somebody who actually in, in my youth grew up right across the street from a, a, a reserve for indigenous people. So I guess it, it made me want to draw this out. But um, there's a sort of, you know, truly a horrifying story in, in Canadian history of um, governments trying to essentially um, eliminate indigenous culture. Uh, the, the terrible practice of taking children and putting them in boarding schools where they would be uh, prevented from using their own language, wearing their own dress or styles, uh, essentially trying to knock the Indian out of them, as, as they said, um, to create a monoculture. Even from the foundation of the Canada Council for the Art in the 1950s, which treated indigenous art as primitive and not real art, um, in that sense, if we look at arts policy from, from the perspective of, you know, what, what is that doing to people, even from a communitarian sense, um, it's, it, it is simply wrong. It, it denies people the, the full chance to have an expressive life if you eliminate the, the culture from which they were, they were raised, um, and then very imperfectly try to import them into the dominant majority culture. And so there's a strong sense there that there's a, there is a, a moral obligation to give full recognition to uh, minority cultures in that sense. And, and so that's, that's the theme of the chapter. That's where I, where I try to come from it in terms of, you know, why, is, why does this actually matter? Why is this important? The book closes with some reflections from, I guess, the kind of um, preeminent economist and um, public funder of the arts, John Maynard Keynes, famously, you know, kind of key figure in, in the Arts Council in uh, Great Britain um, at, at, its, at its inception, at its founding, and also, you know, various of, the, of his writings kind of grapple with these questions about the arts and society. Why, I suppose, did you, you choose to kind of close uh, the book um, with, with, with the discussion of Keynes? And, and where, I suppose, are the kind of uh, lessons or, or almost the kind of synthesis um, of these various arguments? Where, where do they come in, in Keynes's work? Yeah, in the final chapter, I draw on Keynes, but as I think um, you could probably guess, um, 
I have enormous sympathy with with uh, Keynes's argument myself. So this is this is where I, I guess I reveal my own sympathies. And while while Keynes was an economist, he he was not one to sort of take the what we could call the economic method that I deal with earlier in the book uh, to heart. In in fact, his whole uh, his general theory of employment, interest, and money that uh, goes on to say why we need government intervention in the face of business cycles and depressions and so on is a rejection of those neoclassical economic methods saying, you know, just relying purely on markets is not going to work. And so here we have Keynes uh, as someone who says, well, there are intrinsic goods. And of course, he was so heavily influenced by the philosopher G.E. Moore when he was a a Cambridge student and, and one of the apostles. And, and Moore says, well, there are some things that are simply intrinsically good uh, beyond sort of the hedonism of Benthamite utilitarianism. And appreciating um, uh, and enjoying the arts is one of those things. And so here we have the, the Keynes of, of his Cambridge days saying there are, there are things that we simply have an ability to say, this is intrinsically good. This is something we should favor. This is something in public policy we should try to bring to people. And it is independent of that sort of pure economic method that I discussed earlier. And so what I say in this chapter is, to my mind, when it really comes down to that first question of why would we have arts policy at all? Why would we have an arts council at all? What is its justification? I think we cannot avoid Keynes's assertion that, well, it's because this is in fact intrinsically good. This does in fact go beyond just sort of a, a pure economic model of individual preference. And I, I try to make the case, whether successfully or not, I don't know, that if we don't say that, if we don't adopt that view that there is something intrinsically good here, it actually becomes fairly difficult to find that moral justification for public funding of the arts. Because then you do simply fall back on, well, people's preferences are what they are. Maybe there are some public goods, maybe some spillovers, but there's not much else to it. And so I think we, to really justify art spending, actually requires a kind of commitment to saying there is something good here beyond what individuals might perceive. And I, I think that is an important thing to say. I think the, the secondary consideration that comes out of that, and this I think addresses a lot of the sort of contemporary discussion around arts policy, especially as I see it in the United States, is that as soon as we start to try to justify arts spending based on other grounds, that it will make us healthier, that it will reduce crime in our neighborhoods and such, we end up with rather flimsy arguments and that the, the case that there is something about the arts as art is actually always going to be your strongest case for, your strongest moral case for having public funding for the arts. I mean, that, I suppose, would make a, a future book or, or indeed series of books um, in, in itself actually drilling down um, in, into that precise kind of uh, defence of arts funding against, as, as you described, the sort of uh, attachment um, of other agendas to, to the arts. And, uh, and it does make me wonder, after writing, you know, such a 
sort of great overview and you know in itself a, a sort of such an important um, intervention um, what are you thinking of next in, in, in terms of your own work um, as I say there are various kind of uh, future books uh, that I can can see in this text but also um, in, in some sense this could be something where you've sort of settled your accounts with uh, both uh, economists and indeed um, economics related philosophers views of arts funding so uh, what are you thinking of in terms of coming next yeah that's that's it's a good it's a good question and i do think that the final chapter uh on on keynes actually points uh forward to something i i'm fascinated now by the by the questions that were raised by by moore and and sort of this rejection of a, a purely hedonistic uh, utilitarianism. They were they were very much um, the, the, the the Cambridge philosophers. They were very much consequentialist in in terms of well, we should do policies that we think will do good rather than bad. Uh, but how do we how do we measure that bad? How do we think about what is what is good? How do we make those how do we make those judgments? Um, how can we how can we do so? There is a is an idea that I, I raise a few points in the book, uh, this notion of what is sometimes called perfectionism, that um, dating all the way back to Aristotle, I suppose, but perfectionism not in the, in the sense of perfect, but in the sense of completion. And what does it mean um, for us to have full lives, a, a, a completely fulfilling life? What is it that actually matters in terms of what we in terms of what we value. Um, the essay that I always uh, love to teach to my students and that I always complete my, I always use it as the last thing I do in my class is Keynes's economic possibilities for our grandchildren. Um, and that's where his ideas really come out, where he says, well, the, the, the purpose of automation, the purpose of being able to reduce the number of mechanical tasks we need to do to get by is to be able to enjoy the things that actually really matter in life, love and friendship and the pursuit of knowledge and appreciation of beauty and nature and, and in the arts. And so I, I guess a further exploration of that uh, in terms of its implications, especially when we are now in a world where the, the idea of not questioning individuals and what they want has become so uh, paramount. So I would be pursuing that that last chapter further in terms of um, where was Keynes really really going with this.